I am too very stressed about meeting people in person, but I would much rather that than have to succumb to the awfulness of Zoom dating. One, two. Hi, I'm Ramnik Chohal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Carol, how are you doing today? You know, I'm all right. I've had better days, but we're hanging in there. How are you? I'm Gucci. Oh, like not Prada? Actually, if we're going to be completely honest, I'm probably... Walmart? More of like a... Walmart. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> I feel like I'm. I, was like, I feel like I'm a Zellers today. If we're going on that, uh, well, Zellers is discontinued. Exactly. So that means you simply exactly. do not exist. I am a shell of a person today. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Well, speaking of being a shell of a person, mm. let's talk about dating. How is that a transition? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, maybe like lack of human contact has led some of us to maybe feel like a Walmart or a Zellers. That's not the reason we feel like Walmarts and Zellers, but it was a bad transition. Anyways, I just Yeah, that was, that was a poorly done <laughs> transition, but I applaud your effort to stay relevant. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question, Carol. Sure. How or not even how, but have you been dating during this pandemic, online or otherwise? No, I have not been. Have you? No. So I haven't been. I've never actually been on dating apps before. I did have a three-hour stint in which my friends made an account for me. I d- so full disclosure to backtrack a little bit. I did go through a breakup in the middle of a panoramic. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. So that's also why I've never used dating apps before. But the time that I did, obviously post-breakup, <laughs> was not the most fun for me. So Carol, have you used dating apps before? I have. I, prior to the pandemic, I was a, how do I say this politely? A dating app enthusiast. Oh yeah. I, I tried pretty much everything like the mainstream ones, Bumble, Tinder, Hinge, but then also the not so ones like OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, Coffee Meets Bagel. Like I tried all the indie ones too. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I have not even heard of all of those ones. So I feel like I'm the boomer in this equation, but we already knew that. (laughs) I think most people don't. And I feel like it says more about who I am as a person, you know, to the fact that I've tried all of these very like obscure um, underground (laughs) dating apps. So it's not a bad thing that you haven't heard of them before. Okay, well, I the reason we're talking about this, people are probably like, all right, what is this podcast about? So Carol and I wanted to talk about how things are going to be changing as things open up. And we talk a lot about the new normal and anticipating all of these many changes. But I think this is one thing that that um, it's hard to even predict where things are going to go because so much has changed. So this episode is just going to look at some of those changes and how as two young millennials, how we are going to adapt and navigate these many, many changes. So first and foremost, I guess, what is different? What are things that have changed in this landscape, Carol, that you kind of have noticed so far, even just anecdotally? Well, just personally, um, like I'm not saying I haven't dabbled with dating apps during the pandemic. I have, but I think there was like a, I don't even, I don't know if it's 
super dramatic to see a culture shift, but there was definitely a shift in the way that like the etiquette of of, of dating apps, especially like during the, the second and third wave, like I feel like people were like really over with Zoom dates, but then because that was the only option that we had that was like, we were unhappy about it. Oh, this is my beef. Okay. So I hate all things online and communication, but like I, I, I specifically told some guys I was speaking to, I was like, you know what? I'm not down for a Zoom call. Like that's weird. Like I hate Zooming for work. So I don't want to do this for my love life. And they were like, oh, let's do like, let's do a FaceTime. And I was like, that's worse. And then they were like, okay, why don't we do a phone call? And I was like, that's even worse. Like, why, why are your options progressively worse? Like, I don't want, but then it's like, I also can't do that because it's like, I'm like, I'm not giving them any options. Like, I'm not giving them any alternatives because it's not like I could just like go meet them. But like, I think that's where I was like struggling where I was like, I don't even want to meet people because the concept of like having to like awkwardly get to know someone through an awkward communication medium just turned me off. And so eventually I was like, I'm not dating right now. It's just not going to happen. Actually, so Tinder did a survey of their users and um, of their Gen Z users. Nearly half of their users switched to video chat with their matches during the pandemic. And 40% said that they plan to continue using video to get to know people, which I feel like that's a very Gen Z thing because like I, I'm <laughs> like, no, I don't want to go on a Zoom date with you. Thank you so much. But no, thank you. But I feel like Gen Z is just so much much more open to that concept. So I found it so fascinating that people are wanting to continue that. Also, this Tinder survey found that mentions of anxiety and normalize, so those two terms or words, uh, increased in people's bios during the pandemic. So the use of anxiety grew 31%. The use of normalize grew more than 15 times. But what I also found fascinating and what I'm actually interested interested to see in what changes is like, I mean, from again, from the, the outside looking in, the perception of using these are generally, I mean, I feel like there's two sides of the spectrum. People are looking for a long-term partner or they're just looking to just have a casual situation and see where it goes. But during the pandemic, the mentions of phrases like, quote, see where things go, quote, and open to reached an all-time high in Tinder bios. Uh, so people were actually more open to possibility in the last year. And um, the number of daters looking for, quote, no particular type of relationship, quote, was up nearly 50%, which I thought was interesting because I feel like people's situations have very much shifted throughout this panoramic. I'm going to push back on that because prior to the pandemic, people were already saying shit like that. You can swear, I think. This is our podcast. You can say whatever you want. People were already saying shit like that. Like, oh, like I'm open to seeing where it goes or I'm not looking for anything crazy. Like, oh, I'm not really in a rush. Like, I feel like that was like, already, I don't know, maybe this is like the demographic that I was reaching for, but like, this is not a like, this isn't new to me. And the fact that, like, the, the statistic is, like, is acting like this is, like, an increase is kind of weird. Because, like, I feel like the entire dating app culture has always been, like, not looking for anything. Like, super open to whatever. Um, like, we'll see where it goes. Like, life is a highway, you know. It's So, I don't, I don't understand this stat. But I will say the Gen Z um, interest in virtual dating is unsurprising and yet stressful to me because not that I'm trying to date younger, but <laughs> that just sounds like a nightmare. I just like 
I mean, I, I, am, I am too very stressed about meeting people in person, but I would much rather that than have to succumb to the awfulness of Zoom dating. I just, I hate whoever created Zoom. I hate it. I hate it here. I'm tired. For context, this po- this podcast is being recorded. Yes. <laughs> the irony. No, I was just going to say, I think what you said is so interesting because there's that stat that uh, Canadians are very much not ready to return to normal and like people are not ready to meet people in person. And so like that goes to like people, even people I wanted to see, like even like friends and family, that gives me anxiety. So the thought of meeting an absolute stranger is like, no, I'm not mm. ready for that. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to meet them now, but like I would much rather meet someone in person person than have to th- see them through a computer screen. Not that I'm that interested in dating, but you know, when the time comes, maybe I'll I'll stop being a baby about it. But yeah. Um, so some of the other things that we kind of gleaned from from doing research and something that I thought was really this is a US statistic, but I'm sure it's the same here in Canada. Um, so the Pew Research Center found that a uh, majority of U.S. adults live with their parents for the first time since the Great Depression. And as somebody who both lives with their parents and has Great Depression, um, <laughs> living with your parents while you're single is a prime way to kill your dating life, mm. let me just tell you. So that, I think, is an interesting statistic as well, because it's like not only are you navigating all of these other weird dating things and trying to understand how people, you know, what people want or whatever, or this online landscape, Zoom dating, social distance dates, whatever. You're also at home, which let me tell you, does not make things fun or easy. You know what? That's that's an interesting stat because I feel like prior to the pandemic, people our age, if I don't, I mean, this is also a culturally very different thing, but like people who grew up in very like nuclear families where you moved out at a very early age. Like, I feel like at that time, like me meeting a guy who grew up in that cultural setting, if they were like, oh, I still live with my parents, I'd be like, um, that's a red flag. But now because of the, the economy and, and all of this, like I'm less judgmental. I still am, but I'm less judgmental. If you if you already grew up in a setting where it was normal for you to leave your house, if that was culturally not, then I'm a lot more understanding, but just to put out there so I don't sound like a culturally insensitive person. <laughs> no, so. we, we know, we know. So yeah, I think that that's fascinating. I'm also, okay, so we, we again, we were doing a lot of research, but I thought this was an interesting thing that people are more assertive and self-compassionate. And I wanted to know your thoughts, Carol. How has this break, this hiatus from dating changed how you see it? Because I think that that's something that has changed for a lot of people. Has that changed for you? Like changed how I see dating or how I see myself? How you just dating? approach the concept. Mm. How do I approach dating as a concept? I don't. Simple answer. But I think that what the pandemic has forced me to, to forced me, encouraged me, pushed me towards the direction of just simply not giving an F. Because I think before I was very like, oh my gosh, like, where am I going to go? What am I going to eat? How will I eat? What will I wear? Um, Will they like me? And now because I haven't worn makeup in so long, just the idea of like me getting ready for a man, unfortunately I am straight, is the least interesting thing I can think of. Like, I don't even want to do that. I think at this point in my life, I'm like, if you don't like how I look without makeup, if you don't like me 
if you don't like the way that I look with my COVID-15 or whatever, you're a loss, buddy. Because in fact, I have gotten funnier through the pandemic, okay? I have increased my humor. And so if you can't look past all of my physicality, it is what it is. And so I guess that's a roundabout way of saying I'm very, a lot more uh, nicer to myself. I love that. Yes. Also, I can attest to the fact that she has gotten funnier. Because <laughs> as you mentioned that you had like a, a brief stint uh, on these dating apps, like, do you think that's going to be a method that you use? Like now that the world's at least Canada's slightly opening and we've been partially vaccinated? Or do you think you'll just go to Twitter or or meet someone at the grocery store and have a meet cute? I don't know. I think honestly, I'm old school and I and I don't know how. I saw this tweet once where it was like, I have this weird idea that I'm somehow gonna meet somebody in a Barnes and Noble and like that's not reality. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, like I don't use dating apps, but I how do else do I expect to meet people? I have no idea. Mm. But mm-hmm. um I don't know. I just, there was something about it that I just didn't enjoy. I also, yeah, I think I'm like way too old school because somebody messaged me and was like, hey, Ramnik, did we go to school together? I think we had chemistry. (laughs) And that's when I realized that I'm old because I started to think, I was like, oh, was this guy from SFU? Was he from UBC? Like, what class did I have? And then I was like, I never even took chemistry in the university level. And so I realized that, like, I don't understand these types Mm. of things. So long story short, no. I also think so. I was on again, I was on Hinge for like a couple of hours. And I don't know for what reason. Just the demographic of people was just people who, like, seem to be wanting to find a wife. And like, I just was not it. It's not me. Um, And I want people to find their soulmate and it's not me. So I'm just going to remove myself from that equation altogether. So as someone who like you've never really like spent more than three months on on these dating apps, were you surprised by the pool of men that that these apps were pushing onto your feed? Or were you even maybe offended by the men who were like liking you or sending you roses or whatever? Because the algorithm is something that we've been talking about a lot like the, like this this conversation around it is not new tinder has always had this like desirability ranking as part of its algorithm which now people are saying has become a lot more um different but there's a reason some people see less attractive people on their feeds and it's a reflection of how the app mm. sees you so how, how how has that experience been for you have you seen a lot of hot people in your in your um apps or no. I, I, like, full disclosure, I was literally on it for a day. So I, yeah, I didn't spend too much time on it. Um, I found it was, it was an interesting, interesting experience. It was an interesting pool. But I do, I do think that that comes back to, and again, speaking of algorithms, there's a lot of conversation around algorithms and race. And so like, whether or not you put your, you know, filters, uh, dating filters on, other people may have their filters on. And so I think that that's really interesting because, you know, research has repeatedly shown that um, dating apps are racist uh, with or without these these filters. In fact, um, Rolling Stone did an article just last year about 
how after the murder of George Floyd, actually dating apps also were a part of um, the groups of people who were talking about systemic racism. And so uh, some platforms removed ethnicity filters at the time. Some of them still have them. But it's just interesting to think about the ways that racial bias and discrimination actually are embedded into even dating apps. And it's like, obviously, I don't want racist people to show up on my on my algorithm. I think I'm okay with not dating racists. But it's really interesting the ways that it gets uh, the way we get discriminated against, but then at the same time, the way that especially racialized women get kind of exoticized on these platforms and um, objectified as a result. Speaking of filters, for a while, I actually had all like the ethnicity filter. I had all of them checked like to show up except for white because of Asian fetishization. But also I was just so tired, you know, like just when, yeah, like when you're a racialized woman, the the pickup lines and just the, the conversation openers from white guys are so disgusting and rude and inappropriate. I remember there was one and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but there was one guy who was like, so are you like Sriracha? That was it. Stop. Was, there's nothing else. No context. No, nothing after. It was just, are you Sriracha? And I was like, huh? What does that mean? No. Like, see, are I you can't. saying you like sriracha? <laughs> are you saying you don't like spicy condiments? I don't know. What am I supposed to do with that? Like, are you insinuating that I may taste like sriracha? Like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't I don't know. That's that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So I just I had white turned off for a while there. But that also makes me think about like, yeah, for that reason. And I don't think I did. I didn't put any pictures of myself in like traditional Indian clothing or anything on my profile because it's like I didn't want people to, yeah, fetishize or like be like, oh, I want if a, if a guy said that to me, Carol, something about sriracha or like masala or something, I would actually <laughs> shoot myself like that would be I would Girl, actually you look so fine. You look I, like paneer. I would lose my mind. I would absolutely lose my mind. But when it comes to to bring it back to um, like this kind of transformation in this new world or whatever, a bunch of apps have actually been like preparing for that because like now that people are getting vaccinated, obviously things are going to change a little bit. But a number of um, people are now adding in their profiles that they're vaccinated. And in the US, the White House has partnered with dating apps to offer incentives for vaccinated users, Tinder, OkCupid. Uh, Match, Hinge have all kind of been encouraging these kinds of efforts of um, getting people to include that they're vaccinated in their bios or, or whatever, which I thought was really interesting. Is that going to change anything for, for you, Carol? Like, how, how do you think that that's like, even though people are vaccinated and things are opening up and apps are encouraging people to, you know, normal go back to normal and things are happening. Does that mean anything to you? Does that change anything for you in terms of pandemic dating? Because also a bunch of apps, including Tinder, made uh, their passport feature free, which means you could like reach people outside of your area, which is something that you would have had to pay for before, which I thought was very interesting because it's like the matches in this area aren't good, but Who's to say that other other places it's not? Well, I actually played around with the passport feature last year and it was a great time. I mean, if you're a person who is sick and tired of the pool of people in your neighborhood, in your area, passport feature is wonderful because it just gives you hope. It, it lets you know that there are interesting, attractive people elsewhere and that you just need to get on a plane or in your car and just go there because I just, I was, I was very happy to 
to be in the San Francisco bubble. Okay. Hey. I was hey. very happy. I didn't go super international because I was like, I don't want to go all the way to Europe because there's no reason for me to go all the way to Europe. So I stuck to America and San Francisco was really just popping. So to answer your question, I think the vaccination question, if it, it's, if it is not in your profile already, that will be my filtering process. Because if you are not vaccinated, that tells me pretty much everything about you. And that is a huge red flag that I do not need in my life. So yes, if you are not vaccinated, do not hit me up. I will not be hitting you up. I'm not interested in you and your life story. No, thank you, ma'am. Goodbye. What about yourself? You know, I don't even, I'm so not prepared mentally, physically, or emotionally for this post-pandemic dating. I don't even... I don't even know what it's going to look like because I think one, like some of these articles I've talked about, so many people, including myself, have have really gone through a transformation of reprioritizing in our lives and like mm -hmm. personal priorities have shifted and so much has changed individually. So my, my outwards priorities are, I'm not really looking right now for anything or anybody. But when I eventually do... I don't even know like how to act like I've never been in this situation before. So no, I'm not prepared. But if I were to do the dating app thing, um, again, still banking on meeting somebody in a Barnes and Noble. I don't even think we have Barnes and Noble in Canada. No, we don't. So, nope. <laughs> exactly. My in dream, chapters. <laughs> my, in a chapters. Or a coffee shop, maybe. I don't know. Who's to say? Just dreaming out loud here. On the sky train. <laughs> on a sky train. In the park. In a forest. I like looking at my window. Maybe I'll look out my window and I'll see a man's. Who's to say? No, I think it's... I'm just really interested to see where post-pandemic dating takes people. I think I'm interested to see if it makes it more casual or less casual because some people are saying, you know, this is going to be the summer of romance uh, because so many people have been locked down for so long. So some people are going to be very excited to get back out there. But there's also people who are going to be the complete opposite where they're like, I just mm. want to not. Or what I've noticed is that everybody I know is getting married, which I thought we were all kidding. I didn't know mm. you guys were actually serious about, about marriage. So... That's another thing that I notice is that people are getting out of this panoramic and are like, I would like to be married. And to that, I say, good for you. <laughs> I think one thing that the pandemic has also kind of changed within the dating landscape, just even outside of just like the online dating thing, is like the feeling we have of thinking we need to hug people or or kiss people after or before a date, like that pressure has been lifted at, the, at least, I think. I mean, I went on a date during the summer of last year and I just, I felt less pressured to go because I was like, oh my gosh, I, there's no, like, he's, he's not going to want to kiss me or like, I'm not going to need to hug him because we are in a panorama where social distancing is key. And so whether that carries on is a different story, but I think people's mindsets of, of, of the kind of body language and body behavior in dating now has changed. Unless you're weird, then that's your own fault. But I think for the average person, we're like, we don't really have to hug each other or shake hands. We can just like stand two feet away and it's fine. We're like elbow high five each other. Mm -hmm. So intimate. Let's even. So intimate. I think the most exciting thing, like you said, on that note is that people's and this was something that was written in a, in a New York Times article is that this idea that social anxiety is driven by the perception that others hold exceptionally high expectations for us. And I think our expectations of one another have changed. And I think that mm -hmm. everyone's kind of understanding that everybody is human. We are all human. We have all gone undergone a very traumatic situation. And so the way that we approach things and one another is going to change. And I 
And I hope that what comes out of that is that we offer and extend a lot more empathy to one another. And then that also translate, it translates in elevating this experience. So it's not just horrendous and that we have to be like, no, I can't do this whatsoever. Because it is, we have been craving human connection. We have been in isolation. We have been touch deprived. We have been, you know, just away from other people and lacking intimacy and even just friendship sense in, in like, like you said, hugging people or shaking hands. Um, so that's lacking. And even from a romantic romantic standpoint, going on a date with somebody and yeah, hugging somebody or whatever. So I think expectations have changed, but I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, but we'll gotta, we've got to stay tuned and find out. I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. All right. Well, I think that's uh, a nice way to end. Um, if you don't want to hug someone, you don't got to. And always ask for consent. That is the moral of the story. Always and forever. And if you don't want to use dating apps today, you don't got to. I just don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> or you could be like Rubnik and we'll have a meetup at a Barnes & Noble when the border opens up because we don't have Barnes & Noble in Canada. Or we'll open a Barnes & Noble in Canada and then have a meet and greet. <laughs> I don't think Indigo would like that very much. Okay, we'll meet at a Chapters then and we'll have a... I don't think Chapters would like that either <laughs> if Barnes & Noble opened up. That's like kind of like what Target did to us. But then no one really cared about Target, so maybe no one will care about Barnes & Nobles. I don't know. I just want to find my soulmate in a Barnes & Noble. What the fork, everybody? Romnik, what the fork? Our first what the fork is about hashtag Catholic church. So, in light of the news and the discovery of the bodies of 215 children in Kamloops, BC, in the former residential school, the Pope, Pope Francis, Francis, he, uh, from St. Peter's Square, he kind of gave his, uh, quote, apology. It's not an apology. It was a very sad excuse of what could have been the beginning of an apology, but he ended it really short. So this is what Pope Francis said, quote, May the political and religious authorities of Canada continue to collaborate with determination to shed light on that sad story and humbly commit themselves to a path of reconciliation and healing, end quote. So instead of a uh, formal apology, which many First Nations people have been asking for for a long time, but especially now, uh, he decided he'd keep it really short. He'd throw some buzzwords in there and he'd say, Canada, you made a mistake. I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I'm also not going to hold any accountability for the Roman Catholic Church on our part um, with the re residential school system and the genocide. So it was unsurprising, but uh, still devastating and disappointing that the Pope Francis did not do his part and acknowledge the messed up history that the Catholic Church has been a part of in this country's beginning stages and now still. So I say, let's just tax the church. They have too much money. Tax the church. If we're not going to have them actually implement the steps towards an actual part of healing, let's tax the church, okay? They'll be fine. They have been fine for centuries. They will be fine again. So your thoughts on this? Yeah, I I mean, the, the lack of accountability is just maddening. But I think, yeah, like you said, this is unsurprising. It's unsurprising that the same, the same types of language or the same type of rhetoric is going to continue. No accountability will be taken. Nice kind of pretty words that don't really mean anything will be said. And they will move on and continue to perpetuate 
what they've been perpetuating or upholding the structures that they've been upholding that continue to perpetuate violence. So doesn't surprise me, disgusts me a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, but yeah, it just, uh, it's not, it's not surprising because they're not going to, in order to, if they actually acknowledged, um, their past wrongs, they would have to actually take accountability for them. And, uh, they're not able to do that and actually name the ways that they have harmed and continue to harm, uh, indigenous communities. So, but here's another little thing. The Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations is also calling for the release of any residential school records that the Catholic Church may have in its possessions. And the chief of um, FSIN, Bobby Cameron, said these institutions must also preserve and release all residential school records so that true reconciliation and healing can begin and the United Nations can conduct an investigation. So whether it's taxing the church, whether it's making sure that they release all of these records, something's got to give... They've got to do something. And Pope Francis, do better, dude. Do better. And speaking of disappointment, uh, this one's actually a win, but the person in question is a disappointment. Egerton Ryerson, um, the namesake of Ryerson University, is considered one of the architects of Canada's residential school system. So the statue... Uh, of Ryerson was actually taken down and splattered with paint. And then the head was cut off um, and taken to the lakeshore where it was lowered by rope into the water. The university president said that the Ryerson statue was actually uh, taken down about an hour after the conclusion of a demonstration that was protesting the university's continued use of Ryerson's name. So this has been an ongoing conversation about the fact that the university is named after uh, Ryerson. And I actually saw a tweet that I thought was was very well done where somebody said statue taken down at X university. And that sums it up quite well. We need to stop calling it that because we are continuing this legacy and remembering somebody who was a terrible person. And I understand that there were a lot of terrible people in Canada's past and present that have done a lot of harm. But I think, yeah, the the continued use of these people's names and identity and, and likeness is also an act of harm. And so I don't understand why it's taken this long. And we saw this in the States with a lot of the BLM protests and the fact that a lot of, you know, former slave owners or people who were just horrific figures in history continue to be commemorated. And, you know, there's that argument of people saying, oh, well, then history will be erased. It's like, first of all, remember who writes the history books? Let's let's start there. Okay, so who writes the history books? Who chooses what gets remembered and what gets written down? And if we're talking about this specific instance of residential schools, there's a reason that figures like this were lifted up and propped up while stories and literal histories are buried under the ground. And that's an intentional thing. And so we need to have that conversation about the fact that we choose to remember these people because we're choosing to intentionally forget and erase other histories that tell the truth of the shit that people like this did. So good fucking riddance to this statue and this legacy. And I really do hope that this university has this conversation, but also this country has this conversation because so much of the foundation, the legacy of this country is built on genocide. 
and continuing to remember and have these small debates, um, which are big debates, but the fact that we have to fight to not have these people remembered is, is just a waste of time. It should just be, just take them down and the people who are sad about it, cry me a river. On that thread, I saw a tweet the other day uh, from Dr. Amit Arya, which said, if you're more upset about or with the fallen statue of Egerton Ryerson or plans to cancel Canada Day than finding unmarked mass graves of murdered Indigenous children, you are part of the problem, not the solution. And I know, we love our statues, we love our monuments, cityscapes are very important in that part um, of, of remembering and, and all that stuff, but also, if an entire group of people are saying like, hey, this thing that is in the public space is harming us in every way which possible, I don't know, I think that speaks more volumes than us being like, oh my god, but like history is so important. History is important, obviously. But if your whole thing is like, it's in the past, let's forget about it. Let's heal from it. Why don't we actually take steps to listening to people who are actually affected by inanimate objects that really have no value to to people who have never been on the oppressed side of history. Rant done. What the fork number three is... Yesterday, there was a sentencing that uh, was actually finalized. So Braided Bushby, who was a man in Thunder Bay, he was convicted of manslaughter back in the winter of 2017 for murdering a 34-year-old Indigenous woman and mother. He was in a moving vehicle and he threw his trailer hitch, which ended up hitting um, the woman. And her name is Barbara Kettner from Wabigoon Lake First Nation. And it hit her in the abdomen. And apparently, according to evidence uh, that was surface from the trial. As it hit her, Bushby said he got one, quote unquote. So years later, Bushby has finally been sentenced to eight years. And I just want to read a quote from the Ontario Superior Court Justice, Helen Pierce, who said, by doing so, you have minimized women, disrespected them, and made them feel unsafe. Your actions are an affront to all women. And then she added, the court has also been told that it is a common experience for Indigenous people in Thunder Bay to have objects thrown at them from passing cars, eggs, drinks, bottles, bricks, garbage. You have joined in this disgusting act. Now we can add trailer hitches to that list. And while Thunder Bay is quite known for the blatant violence against indigenous people. I think this city and and kind of this this trial and and the stories that are very similar to it are strong representations of what it's like elsewhere in Canada that we just have ignored for a really long time. We like to blame Thunder Bay, Thunder Bay it's so racist, but this is happening everywhere and we're just not putting the spotlight on on it. You know, things are happening in our backyards that we are just turning a blind eye to. So I think if you are shaken by what Bushby has done and people like him have done to Indigenous women. Look at what's happening in your own city, in your own neighborhood, because I guarantee you it's not, it's, this is not, this is not an isolated thing. And on that note, I think we should wrap up today's WTF. Um, obviously, this was another very heavy one, but it's very important for us to, like Carol said, look at what's happening across this country, look at what's happening in these neighborhoods and unpack them, have a conversation about them because it's making us say WTF. Uh, but it's about time that these kinds of things actually start to change and that we're not having the same conversation like you said. It's just a constant cycle of of pain and trauma and it, it needs to change, but um it won't be if we if we continue to just 
act like it's just a part of the way things are. And it's an unfortunate incident when there is an entire infrastructure around it to like starting with the Catholic Church, all the way down to individual actions and biases, uh, the government. Um, there's so many things that contribute to that. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Decomplicated. We will see you tomorrow. This episode was produced by Remnik Johal, Carol Eugene Park, that's me, and Brayla Kwan. Special thanks to our intern, Grace Jenkins. Decomplicated is a product of Overstory Media Group. That's it. Bye.